There's a very important football game tomorrow night for those of you who follow college football. And um, my home state, Alabama, plays Georgia, and so that's the reason my in-laws, who usually sit on this side of the church, we play Georgia, you'll find them on this side. They, like Jonah, are running as far away from, from God, no, I'm serious, so, um, <laughs> from the blessing to be Alabama. No, anyway, um, so the real, we do that every time we play each other, just so you know. Uh, the real test will be where do we sit next week in, in our restoration process. We're looking at Jonah uh, for these next these first four or five weeks of the year. And we've launched a vision for our city called Grace for the City. We're unpacking that even more in the coming months as we've revisited it. We tried to launch it before the pandemic. We had to put it on hold. We've launched it this uh, past fall. Uh, and then we're asking the Lord to bring some clarity. But I think it's appropriate for us to look at Jonah because God asked him to go reach a city, to bless a city, to speak to a city. And with that came our many, many lessons uh, that we can learn. So there's numbers of themes in Jonah. But, so we're pulling out some themes of what might God do in you if he calls you or a church to reach a city. Which, by the way, that is a perpetual call now for his people to reach a city, to reach a community. And, um, and uniquely... There's some great lessons. So we're kind of looking at the themes of Jonah. And last week, uh, we looked at the doctrine of sin that's revealed uh, in this book of Jonah. Now, I'm going to refer this morning a lot to chapter 4. But just so you know, for the breakdown of Jonah, the way it's broken down, it's an unusual literary book in the sense that you would think just work expositionally through each each verse of the chapters, 1, 2, 3, 4. But it's broken down in an odd way, so we're going to refer to it in different, in different ways um, and look at it. So I'm reading, we're reading chapter 1, but this morning I'm going to look at chapter 4 uh, and refer back and forth. And here's how it's broken down, just so you know. There's basically uh, two parallel stories uh, that are symmetrical, uh, and you have it in chapter 1 and chapter 3 and chapter 2 and chapter 4, and they're, kind of, they're, they're symmetrical nits. And so it breaks down this way. There's a commission in, chap- in the first story, and there's a commission in the second story. And then, uh, so there's a commissioning from God. First time Jonah doesn't respond well, second time he actually goes. But we learned last week, even his going was not a very good response because of what was going on in his heart. But nevertheless, there's a, there's a commission, and then there's a confrontation with the lost world, with those not like the Jews. And that's the people on the ship that we read about, and then the pagans in Nineveh who were uh, against God. So there's a commission, two commissions, one each, and then there's a confrontation, and then God, there's an interaction with God at the end of those. Uh, In chapter 2, there's interaction where Jonah prays to God, and in chapter 4, which we'll be looking at a good bit this morning, um, there's an interaction, so as well with God. And um, then fourthly, the last part, there's kind of a kicker. So you have these two symmetrical three parts, uh, a commission, a confrontation, and two Uh, interactions with God, and then a kicker in the end. And so we're going to look at the kicker a little bit uh, and start uh, with that. And um, But the doctrine that I want to highlight, or the lesson to learn, is just the compassion of God. Okay? So I don't just want to hold it up to you. Last week we looked at the, the doctrine of sin, which is really important to see. This week, I just want you to see and look at the, the compassion of God that is everywhere in this literary work of God, this, this real thing that actually happened, by the way. And um, there's numerous miracles in it, but this morning, the theme, we'll look at some others in the next three weeks, but this morning, I just want to hold up the compassion 
of God to you. So we'll answer three questions in our outline. What is the compassion? What is, what is compassion? What is unique about God's compassion? And then lastly, um, who receives his compassion? So what is compassion? What's unique about God's compassion? And then who receives it? Let's pray. Lord, um, would you prepare our hearts to receive the awe-inspiring, overwhelming compassion of who you are. There is no way as a mere vessel and human being that I could hold up to your people the grandeur, the magnificence, the weightiness of just how compassionate you are. Would you grant us a glimpse? Would you grant us a glimpse in a way this morning from your scriptures to our minds and to our hearts and to our hands? May we be overwhelmed just briefly this morning in this, in this time in history for just the rhythm of your people gathering together for another meal, another worship service, the rhythm of six and one, six and one in creation so that we might eat again and see again together the beauty of who you are and feed upon it. May your name be exalted as the compassionate one. Amen. All right, so first question then is what, what is uh, compassion? What is compassion? Well, before I answer that, I do want to just pause and say what it's not, okay? Let me just say what it's not. Now, I'm doing this because I think some people think like me, and there's a fear that somewhat was in Jonah. It's about when you're going to highlight compassion of God and compassion of God, I think there's a lot of people who feel like, how can you be compassionate and not affirm sin or affirm the things that are bad? That to be compassionate is to say, to be compassionate to someone means that I'm saying, we feel like it's saying like, that everything you're doing is okay, all right? That's not what compassion is, but let me just, let me just, uh, let, let you see that. Look at verse 1 in chapter, in chapter 1, what we read this morning. When, when God gives the command and then to, uh, to Jonah to go to the city and call out against it, notice what he says. He says, arise and go to Senator, the great city, and call out against it. So the idea is, to, is for him not to go affirm, right? The idea is to go call out against it. That's what he's asking him to do. There's some, there's some oomph, if you will, of God against what they're doing. And then notice it says, for their evil has come up before me. So he's clearly sees their evil and is wanting to address it, all right? And so um, uh, oftentimes we think compassion means that we're affirming. I want you to say that God had issues with the sins of Nineveh. And, uh, and they, were, they were flagrant and great and horrible. Last week, if you go back and listen, I expounded on some of the things that this, that this particular empire was doing to people. But I'll add one today that I didn't say last week. Even the kings of Nineveh would actually take pictures and draw paintings of just blood corpses across fields to have them on display so that people could see how they had conquered people. They relished the idea of corpses and blood filling filling the lands. And so they would have paintings for those. That's what the kings would do. So, so, but I want you to see that when God calls them, he's going to actually call them to go speak against them. Now, the world wants us, uh, feels like compassion. Uh, we, we live in a world that hates actually this. We hate the idea of exclusion, right? That you can't leave everything. Everything's about inclusion. And we hate the idea uh, and the understanding of exclusion. And there's such hatred against it right now. And some of it's merited, right? There's been some, uh, when you look at racism, and, and that's what Jonah did, there's some things that are exclusive that are, were evil. But in this sense, well, there's a hatred for it. 
And uh, in its nature, exclusion in the bad sense, when you exclude people, it's, it's a nature, uh, it determines one, someone, I'm better than you, and therefore I exclude you. That's what we're responding to. That's what the culture feels oftentimes. But exclusion is not all wrong in and of itself, right? I mean, think of it in this way. Um, if someone were to start a pickleball club in Danville, how do we just get to pickleball, right? You're wondering that this morning, right? But if there's a pickleball club and they have practice, they don't want all the soccer players and basketball players to show up at their practice. They want those to show up who play pickleball, who are involved with it. By nature, they exclude others. That's not a, that's not a wrong thing to exclude the non-pickleball players to ask you to join me. And, um, and even our justice system, right, when we look at we and we want and long for justice, we actually put people in jail. We have jails in that saying that we exclude you from society because of something that you've done. So there's a nature exclusion is bad. But, but let me say this. What we do and what Jonas was doing was an exclusion that was wrong. But God himself is the only one who has the right to exclude because he's the only perfect one. That was our point last week, that there are no good people, that Jonah was just as bad as the Ninevites. God is the only one who can exclude. So inclusion, by the idea that the world is really demanding all the time that everyone be included, this idea of inclusion, an affirmation of all things, um, it's an impossible thing to accomplish, if you think about it. All right? It's impossible because... In order for everybody included, what if you say, I mean, it turns itself on its, on its head philosophically. What if I were to say, I don't think everyone ought to be included? Then all of a sudden, I'm excluded from this particular group, right? You, you say, if I don't believe in inclusion, then I can't be a part of the, the group that says I'm spo- everyone's supposed to be including. But here's the other thing. If you include, if you will, or affirm everything and everyone, it's impossible to do that. You eventually do away with the, with the definition of evil. That there actually is something wrong. And so do you see that? But the gospel speaks to exclusion and inclusion. Here's how it speaks to us. This is how we need to know it. In the gospel, we should have been excluded because of our sin. But God in his mercy chooses to include us according to Christ and to bring us in. And as a result, how do we walk and navigate this world with this idea of exclusion and inclusion and reconcile that? Well, we have what I think God is calling us to whenever you reach a city is a compassionate truth. I should have been excluded, but I wasn't. And that brings me humility and compassion. But nevertheless, I don't also hold on to truth. So a compassionate truth is where we land. Now, as you look at this, verse 1, verse 2, Sinclair Ferguson's, you see the judgment of God here. And he does want to come against the Ninevites. But I think it's Sinclair Ferguson. I, I think he says this. I, I've, I've read this quote uh, before. That um, God's judgments always come with tears. And even in our passage, even in the Jonah, what we're going to see is that later in this, he is longing to be compassionate, even to the Ninevites. His judgment always 
comes with tears. I think most of us, oftentimes, if you're like me, maybe you don't, you think of God uh, as up there kind of playing chess with his sovereignty and moving, and it's just everything's about strategy and him orchestrating things for his glory. But one of the things we've learned, after we've not, learning from Juno and Lowly, the study that we did in our church this last year, is that his heart is always breaking for his people. He is a father who weeps over the things that are being executed that are happening to us all the time. So, what compassion is not, is not um, affirming sin, but it is a God who judges. There is sin there, and compassion by its nature uh, has the presence of something between people, like us between God and his compassion comes. So, what is then compassion? Let's answer that. Uh, when you look at the, the word there, let's go to verse 11. Um, I should have that here. This is kind of the, 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 the last verse of the whole book of Jonah. And um, jo- God has just finished uh, basically counting, uh, counseling Jonah and answering his angry prayer, um, which we'll look at in just a second. And in verse 11, he says, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? He's saying, Should I not show them pity? And, uh, and the definition, really, of compassion, that word there, pity, could have been translated compassion. It actually is in some translations. But you, God is saying to him, should I not show them pity? Should I not have pity to the uh, compassion to the, um, to the Ninevites? And some translations say pity, like this one. Some say concern. The King James, if you ever read that anymore, the King James actually says spare. But here's the thing. The word pity, uh, when you look at it, most of the people I looked at reading about that particular word said that word is too narrow. That it ha- it's a word that we chose to use in the, in the English, but it's probably it's a broader, broader sense of a word. It's actually, um, it's an it's too narrow if you use pity, but the idea of compassion. And here's basically the fullness of the definition: is to have your heart attached to something that you weep over. That's the fullness of definition. Now, when you look at the English definition, uh, when you go to uh, Webster, sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings and misfortunes of others. That's our English, English definition. But the fuller word here really is to, the idea of grieving. That's the idea of what it, what it brings. And so, um, and you think about it in this way, compassion is to actually be attached to something. Attached to it in such a way that it really really affects you. The Greek way of thinking, Greek thought, was benevolence was a work of the will. Like they thought of benevolence as, if I'm going to help you in your needs and meet your needs, then I will, uh, I'll deliver that, and that benevolence was a work of the will. I just choose to do that. But the idea in the Greek culture uh, for, the, uh, for the word um, compassion was, um, was the idea of involvement and attachment, and actually grief. And so that's the word here that it's doing. So let me just say, one of the things God is calling his people when he calls you to reach a city is he's calling you to be attached to them, attached to them in a way that you grieve and that you see what's going on with them. Do you notice what verse 11 says in chapter 4? It says that, that he understood that they couldn't tell their right hand from their left hand. And he was aware of what was going on and that they were entangled in much sin. But compassion of that is attaching. 
yourself to it. Now, I'm going to be a little honest here and vulnerable. I hope this doesn't offend anyone. But I came here to visit, and when I first came to work for Campus Outreach, I was working for college ministry, and Center College is one of the colleges we would we were going to try to be, go to the campus outreach was. And a long, long time ago, many of you don't know this, before I ever moved here, I came to visit and look at the campus, and I actually stayed in the Ellis's, uh, well, actually, Will got to stay in your house. I was stuck living on campus with some freshman in his dorm for the night just to investigate. So thanks for selling me out there, Brian, you and Laurie. But the boys were, I did get in the floor, and Baker and all those boys were really, really little. And so uh, I remember the first night I was at Center College, <laughs> I was walking around, this guy was telling me about Center, and he said, you know, the average ACT score here is 28. Now, I thought to myself, well, I can double mine and get in here, so <laughs> what am I doing here? So um, I was like, my goodness, right? How arrogant. Uh, it was a little bit of an acquired taste for me to hang out at Center, all right? But then I moved here and began to spend time there, began to pray, began to go over there every day, day by day, and to long for them, and I became attached. And now I defend center. I kind of have a love-hate sometimes with them, but I defend them. We love them. Why? Because I became attached to them. Compassion is attached in a way that weeps. And I will say that I have weeped over center at times. What things do you weep for? Those are the things you're attached to. And God is saying, should I not weep for Nineveh? And what it's telling us is that he was at some level attached to them. That's what compassion is. Doesn't it remind you in Luke 19? Ever thought of a city that Jesus wept for? When he turned towards Jerusalem and he wept for them? By the way, we, we represent Jerusalem if you're a follower of Christ. He attached himself to us and wept for us. That's compassion. So what is unique about God's compassion then? And so, for that is what compassion, is there anything unique about God's compassion? And there is. Um, we're different than God in this, is that you and I were designed to be attached to something. We naturally attach. That's what we do. We weren't made to live independent. Um, that's why in high school that, uh, or college that you see young people all the time going from boyfriend to girlfriend or longing for it or wanting that. Why is that? Because in their design, they were made to be attached to something. Now, ultimately, the only thing that we can be attached to that oversatisfies is God. But by nature, with human beings, we were made to be attached to something. And we attach ourselves to all kinds of things. This is why the most important thing that, that can happen to a child, right? What, we, what psychologists tell us is that the thing that can happen to a child when he's born is for them to be held. What? To feel attachment. Something like 80% of our, our jails are filled with attachment disorder. That they've never been connected to anyone early in their life. That's probably some of the reasons that happen. So it's a, it's a big deal. And so by nature, you and I, by our own design, we're made to be attached to something. Okay, that's who we are. But you know what? God doesn't need to be attached to anything. It's actually a huge 
not huge, but a complex doctrinal word, the ascetity of God is what we call that. And what that means is, is that he's sufficient to himself. He's independent of anything outside of himself. God knows a thing, nothing, he, he doesn't need anything from anyone in order to live, right? That's what Acts 17, 24 and 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. It's a huge doctrine. Some bevink and some theologians think it's the most central doctrine that all other things come from about who God is. That first and foremost, he is not in need of anything. He is independently self-sufficient. So by the way, he doesn't need our worship. When we gather today, it's not like he needs us to praise him. He doesn't. Is he worthy of our praise? Of course, and that's why we gather. Do we need to, to praise him? Of course. Why? Because we need to be attached to him. But he's not in need of it. So what does that mean about his compassion? Why well, tell you that deep theological word? What does that tell you about his compassion? His compassion is voluntary for you and for me and for anyone he gives it to. If compassion is attaching, and if he ever attaches, he does it not because he needs it, but because he voluntarily so chooses to do so. That's beautiful. He's so other that he doesn't need it, and yet he chooses to have compassion. Right? That's so different than us. Why is that so different? We, any good thing we try to set out and do, because what we looked at the doctrine of sin last week, but that there's not a single part of us that's not contaminated with the fall. And even if I want to go try and bless the poor, and I, I want to do it voluntarily because of what we understand about the nature of a man's heart. Even the good things we do, I attach myself to it and I find my worth and value from it. I can feed upon the things I attach to even when I think I'm doing it voluntarily. You can try to be a great parent out of real love, but guess what? You'll attach yourself in a way that is sinful. We can't comprehend that yet he voluntarily comes. That's what his compassion is like. He doesn't need it. We need it when we volunteer sometimes and do things. He doesn't need it and he chooses to do it. Let that rest on you this morning. The other things that are unique about his compassion is that it's very, very quick to forgive. It's, he's quick to give it. He's not restraining. He's not looking. He's longing to give it to you. If you remember, that was one of the things about uh, God's compassion that we learned about in Genoa Noli, those of you who participated in that struggle. I think the language that Dane Ortland uses is that God's love is, and his mercy, he, he, he's not trigger happy towards uh, anger and wrath. He's trigger happy, if you will. The very being is to come to you gentle and lowly and in a compassionate way. Look at our passages, if I could, I, I would. I mean, think about this. Well, you, I, don't, I don't have them here for you. But in chapter 1, Jonah just runs as far as he can, and he falls asleep and he ignores everybody around him. He doesn't even look like a prophet. But what does God do? He's, he just is ready to save him, and he brings a fish in the middle of a storm to save him. And then in, verse, uh, in chapter 3, when, when, when Jonah is actually speaking to the Ninevites, 
and, God, and he tells them to repent. And the king actually has some response to God, and the people do. And they kind of make some th- vows and changes to their, to their people. In verse 10, chapter 3, he says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said from he would do to them. And he did not do it. He's, he's waiting to back off. He's ready to give compassion. And notice in chapter 4, if you can go here and look at that, chapter 4, verse 6. In chapter 4, these first five verses, he has pitched a fit, Jonah has. He has literally pitched a fit and said, I'm exceedingly angry, and I don't like it that you have shown graciousness to the Ninevites. And in verse 6, you know what he says? God says, now the Lord, God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly uh, glad of the plant. He went from exceeding wrath to exceedingly glad. Why? Because the compassion of the Lord is just coming. It just keeps coming. It's quick. He longs to forgive. He's forgiving and compassionate to Jonah. He's compassionate to the Ninevites. And then if you go to verse 11, this is an interesting thought. His compassion What's unique about its compassion is it's quick and it's trigger happy and then also that it's, it's voluntary. But the third thing I want you to know that's unique about God's compassion is that it is, it's not less than evangelism, but it's broader than evangelism. It's broader than just evangelism. All right? It's broader than just trying to have people converted, which is a very, very gracious, incredible thing. But let me explain this well. We notice that, that it tells us that the city, had Nineveh, Nineveh had 120,000 people. Now, I don't know if you read that and thought, that seems kind of small. Most think it was. Now, Calvin actually thinks, well, some, some theologians look at that and say, maybe it was just the men. Sometimes they only counted the men. The city must have been much bigger than that. And, but they don't know their left hand from their right hand means that they're infants in their understanding of God. And it's really talking to adults. Women, children, men is talking to everybody. Calvin and others think that that 120,000, when he gives that, it's a small number in comparison, that he was numbering the children. That there literally are children there that need, that if this nation that is doing all sorts of horrible things, if they, they will be affected. And by the way, it doesn't seem like that the Ninevites actually were converted to Christianity. We'll look at that in the future. They back off and change. And some think that when Jesus refused it, he says that they repented looking at it. But most, Keller and some others, think that actually this was just a, a social issue of compassion for a horrible evil just to be slowed down and addressed. That God cared about the poor, the needy, the children, and just the bad things that were happening physically to the people, and he sent him to go there. Now, let me just say this morning, the most compassionate thing that can ever happen is for us to bring someone to show them Christ and for them to be brought from death to life and to be, become followers and experience the grace and mercy of Jesus. But 
to live and, ex- and, and to be a people who show the, the uniqueness of God, it's not only that, it's far greater than that. Not greater, not less than, but let me say it this way. Social justices are always attached to the event, those who long for people to evangelistically put their hope in Christ. Because God's compassion isn't just for the soul. It's, it's far-reaching. And he cares when image bearers and the 120,000 and lost groups and all that, when, they, when horrible things are happening to them. So God, in a sense, was calling Assyria to repent of their oppression and their violence. And they stop, and he relents his disaster. Why? Because he's compassionate. So lastly, who receives Jesus? Who receives this compassion? Well, uh, let me just say, the whole world right now is receiving the compassion of God because we're not being destroyed. He would have the right to destroy everyone right now. But he's compassionate towards his people because all are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. And so, even in this particular story of Jonah, when Jonah was dealing with the, when he was a prophet, when you look at him, he was speaking to the northern kingdom. And one of the things that probably drove him bananas was that the northern kingdom was returning, was worshiping Baal and has abandoned God all the way, and yet they were supposed to be God's people. And some of the kings, to two kings that he was speaking to, they were doing terrible things themselves, just like the Assyrians. And you know what? God still increased and was gracious, increased their land. He was compassionate to them. It had to drive Jonah crazy. So God's compassionate to the church when they don't do things they should be and his people. He's compassionate towards, his compassion goes towards um, uh, evil empires. And he shows compassions for them to relent. Whether he saves them or not, he moves towards them and has great care for them. But then he's also very, very compassionate to the Jonas of the world. And you should see yourself as Jonas. He was so compassionate to Jonah. And what do I mean by that? Well, in Mark, um, there was a time, I don't know if you remember, we preached through Mark some years ago. And there's, this, there's this, uh, this healing that Jesus does in Mark 8 where he heals uh, a, a blind man in Bethsaida. And it's an unusual healing. I remember when I preached, I was like, I never remember this passage. It's not in the other Gospels. But he heals this blind guy. And the guy, after he t- touches him, he only can halfway see. I don't know if you remember that from that <laughs> where Jesus heals him. And the guy looks up, he opens his eyes, and Jesus touches him. He says, ah, I see people, but they look like trees walking. You know, that, that's a confounding thought. Like, did Jesus halfway, or was he not king, or did he mess up on that one, right? I mean, that puts a conundrum on your understanding of Jesus' uh, healing. So he touches him, and he only heals him halfway. But then Jesus touches him again, and now he can see perfectly. Now, that's an unusual, para- or an unusual event, healing. That here's probably one or two things I think you can draw away from that. Number one is this. Is that people being changed and healed by God is a process. And also, God just works uniquely in different ways in different people. And so, I'm putting this under ourselves as Jonas here, right? Think of yourselves as Jonas. And he is so compassionate to us about being in process. 
when you go to chapter 2, and at the end of Jonah's prayer there, remember this prayer, he's happy, he's been in the, ve- the, the belly of the fish. And he says, and I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you, and I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. So he's, he kind of praises the Lord and says, I belong to you in a vow. But then he gets to chapter 4, which you can read this one with me, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee Tarshish. For I knew you'd be gracious, God. I knew you were trigger happy with your graciousness. And he's mad about it. And he's like, yeah, and let me die. He says it three times. He's pitching a fit. So whatever he knew in two that was true, he didn't quite remember when he gets to chapter four, right? Why is that? Because he's in process, just like you and me. And God is compassionate. He's so compassionate, Danny. When you look at Psalm 88, it's a a psalm of lament, and at the end it finishes so dark. It says, The last verse says, you've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And it just finishes like mad at God. That psalms of somebody in process. And why, you know what, Kidner um, says, why why does God just leave psalms like this and that people can be hurting and say things to God like that? He says this because God knows how men speak when they're desperate. And he knows because he became a man. He doesn't despise us because of our weakness. He knows our weaknesses and he shows compassion. Jonah is God's compassion on display. And right now, I know there are many of you who feel like there's no way you deserve the compassion of God, and you don't. And there's many of you and us who are such in process as parents, as workers, as we're still in process. And I hold up to you this morning the voluntary compassion of God. He's compassionate. steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies or his compassions never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Let's pray. Father, um, Would you help us to believe this morning that your compassion is far greater than we ever knew? And would you help us to rest in it? Believe that you're ready to forgive and ready to be gracious and ready to be compassionate. If we are the Jonas, there's nothing better in us than the Ninevites. The only reason we receive your full compassion is because of Christ. 
who received the wrath of the Father so that we might receive the compassion of the Father and experience and live in it. So would you help us to, we will, we will never love a city well and we'll never live in the freedom and joy we should have until we really, really believe you're compassionate. And I, I confess, Father, I don't know how to always hold that up to your people and to myself in a way and to these children that are coming in. I don't know how to hold you up as a compassionate God to the degree that you are. But would you help us to taste of that and see that? Would you, would you really, really help us? In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.